Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond Fireside Chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia and I'm speaking to Bekin Tuli from Africa Foundation. As Regional Manager for the province of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, Becky oversees the Foundation's projects in all five communities that surround and beyond Pinda Private Game Reserve. Becky will be talking to us about the changes that he has seen over the past 16 years of his career, including the shift in attitudes towards conservation, as well as sharing some details about his favourite community projects. Welcome, Becky. To kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for the Africa Foundation? Thank you, Kesha. Um, my name is Pegin Tuli from Ndugu community, which is one of the five communities that we currently work with. I joined the foundation in, in 2004. My very first formal job or employment, and I've been with at the foundation up to date. I'm actually a go between the Camp Reserve and all these five communities. It's it's very primarily on the project project identification by the communities and then the community will surface those projects, identify them, prioritize them. And then I will be the person or I will be working with those communities and actually categorize them in terms of our three categories of focus areas as Africa Foundation, which is primary health care, education, and also small business development project. But of course, we have also included conservation and environment, which is actually the fourth one that we are also doing. We still work with communities. They are still actually using a, a traditional structure, which is mainly the constituency of the chief of the area and his actually council, which in, in, involves the Izinduna in Zulu, which we normally call them like the headmen, and also the people that are maybe part of the leadership there. So we consult with all those structures directly before we even engage to any community. So I'm just mainly, I say, the go between the private camp reserve and beyond between the private camp reserve and these communities. And that's my job. Of course, being the regional manager is now to oversee, and not only in terms of project, but also to look at the implementation of those projects. And beyond that, also, we're part of fundraising, which we always take our guests to show what is happening outside in the community. Okay, so it's quite a comprehensive portfolio that you look after. So, Becky, just to give our listeners a little bit of an introduction to the communities that you work with, can you describe a little bit about what are those communities like? Things like what is the size of the communities? What kind of facilities do they have access to or don't they have access to? And what are some of the challenges that they're facing that you're trying to help them solve as part of Africa Foundation? These communities, there are currently five communities. The total population, you're looking at about plus or minus 80,000 people. They are different in terms of sizes. The first three communities, which we always say, these are the very first communities that we engaged when we started way back in 1990, 1991, was Mdugu. So Mdugu, Nibela, and Ngobogaz. So Mdugu is also known as Makasa community. has got about 15,000 people. And of course, people move in and out mm-hmm. of the community, but we've seen the growth over the years. Go to the second one, it's Nibela, but that one is not a big one. It's like 8,000 people. 
and then the third one is Mnobogazi community, which also looking at around about 10,000 people. And there are two communities that actually came into our scope 2005-2006, Kwachobe community and Kwangwenya. And each of those communities, you're looking at about almost 17 to 18,000 people. So those are the two biggest ones. So if you look at that, it's plus or minus 80,000 people. Okay. And in terms of the challenges that they're looking at, obviously these are rural communities, so they don't have all of the facilities that you would expect to have in a town. What are the main challenges that they're facing? One of the challenges that is common to all of them is actually unemployment. People depend on an employment or an income generation that they can be able to sustain their families. That what we have seen even over the years, young people who complete metrics, they end up really having challenge of actually looking for a job, which actually leads to mm -hmm. the level of some of the communities. The poverty is a, is a big issue. Also, education infrastructure or school infrastructure, that is one of the big challenges. And I think now COVID-19 has added on that because we were sitting with close to almost 100 requests, more classrooms, more classrooms, more classrooms, because of the number of the kids or like the learners per class, which sometimes double the ratio that should be there. And also the healthcare facilities in some of the communities that we haven't been able to raise as much as we, we wish to raise in terms of actually providing those projects. The main one that actually has come out, out of COVID-19 mm -hmm. is actually, as I say, food security or that how can this community be self-sustained without depending on the handouts or maybe the relief from outside. There is more mm -hmm. need for income generating projects that needs to come out of the communities. That is something that they can do on their on the own. And of course, one of also the challenge that I can add is that as this community also develop, there is also a, an issue of a population that is so much increasing mm -hmm. because we also observed a lot of teenage pregnancy even in high schools. And you'll see that by looking yes. at also even the crashes or the early childhood development project, you will see that most of those kids there on those crashes are actually uh, their mothers. And we'll find that those are like teenagers mm -hmm. who are still going to high schools. So those are the challenges. You've also spoken about the factors that you think are important for poverty alleviation in terms of income generating projects and education. Is that the route that brought you towards Africa Foundation? You know, how did you first get involved with the foundation? And why do you think that the model that they follow is so effective in the rural communities? Yes, Kesha, to be honest, when, when you come from the background of the rural communities like Mdugu, Mnabogazi or any other, you go study to come back and, and look for a job. And the first thing that rings in your mind is like, I want a job. And sometimes I don't care what job is it as long as I'll be able to earn an income or rather have a salary at the end of the month. And of course, joining the foundation was coming from that, that I was looking for a job. It wasn't mainly about what I, was, I had started. But of course, as you rightly pointed out, I did um, a study when I was doing my final year. Specifically, I was interested on in agriculture. 
and how can agriculture be a means of poverty alleviation, especially in the rural areas? Because I, I grew up seeing mm-hmm. my, my mothers and my grandmothers going, you know, early in the morning, they will go out and, and actually do a lot of planting and plowing, come back midday. And so I was just thinking around that, that how can this actually be maybe more improved and even scientifically? And of course, how I joined the mm-hmm. foundation was through my colleague when I joined the foundation. But before then, we were together in university. So he started through CLEF, which is Community Leaders Education Fund. So he talked to me about CLEF, and I wasn't clued up about CLEF. Then later on, when he finished, he came to run one of the projects in Mdugu Community. So when this post came up or this job opportunity came up, he, he called me and said, I know that you're looking for a job, you know, would you be interested in something like this, working with communities? I had no idea really how with the game reserve conservation, all I knew when I grew up okay, was that we grew up in communities where people were more in poaching. So it is all more about there's meat on the other side of the fence and there's no relationship beyond that. So I went for this post and I applied and during my interview, that is where everything started. I just started to understand that, okay, this is now about conservation and I don't know anything about conservation. Well, I got the job and as I was working, as, as I started mm-hmm. to understand my first three months, I went back and I reviewed where I grew up originally, which is further north and how people used to think about the conservation and the game reserves cut the fence and, you know, people going in for poaching, especially for impalas and bring the dogs. And it was like a something that is, is allowed to happen. So it was like that. But when I joined the foundation and I observed directly working with a Babti, which Isaac Dembe, who really mentored me so well into this job, into understanding what is it about. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he also come from the very same background. And I used to see him when I was still young. When I met him during interviews, like I realized that this, I think I know this man. But, you know, yes. seeing him being part of conservation and having this model of how can we involve communities in conservation, I repented. The decision I took was to say, whatever I know, I observed, I experienced. It is, I believe it, that was not a, a model, that was not a correct model. But Africa Foundation and then beyond has a model because I understood, I started to learn more about how to engage communities, how to consult with communities. So I think my love and the interest grew from there. And seeing the impact, even when I joined 2004, there were a lot of like infrastructure projects, classrooms, clinics. And when we go to these meetings, I will sit there and I will, I will actually observe how the chiefs, you know, how Isaac, how Babti, how Isaac Tembe addresses the, the, the council or the chief. And and that is my root. That is how I grew up, you know, the respect, mm-hmm. you know, out of that. Yeah. So I think that is how I joined the foundation and that's how I, I got yes. to uh, love what I'm doing. And I think, to be honest, on terms of the model, you know, <laughs> this is the best model, I can say, because it involves everybody. It, it is more of not a top-down approach, but it's like a bottom-up approach, which is more about what, what people are saying rather than what we think people need, but it's what people are saying they need. That's a really, really interesting story, Becky. And there are a couple of things there that I wanted to go back and ask you about, so I'll take them one by one. 
It's really interesting to me that you mentioned that the person who sort of first brought you into the foundation and who made you aware of it was part of the Community Leaders Education Fund and, and that bursary project. So I know that Africa Foundation and, and, and beyond, they've been working with the community surrounding Pinda basically since 1991. And that relationship has, has been going for a long time. And a lot of the projects, particularly the, the CLEF program, have been going for a really long time. And I think what's what's quite interesting to me is you speak about members of the rural communities finishing their education and then sort of being at at a loss for a for a job or what to do with themselves. And I think inevitably, in general, a lot of those people would end up moving away to towns, um, to nearby towns or to bigger cities to look for work. And those skills and that input would be lost. Have you seen things change so that the young people who were part of the Africa Foundation project in the early years have ended up coming back and giving back to the local community or becoming involved in conservation or community projects? Yes, Kesha. Over the years uh, that I've been with the foundation, what I've observed is that most people that have actually come out of the program that will be returning back to the communities yes, will course. be people on the profession around education. I'd say over 60, 70% they've come back to their communities. But of course, it also depends on the availability of the job or the post in those schools, building schools. It has also provided the same jobs for the same students who have actually gone to study mm-hmm. through CLEF. And then yes. now they got an opportunity to come back and work in their communities where now the schools were also built with mm-hmm. an initiation or with the support of Africa Foundation. I've seen a lot of that. And I've seen some mm-hmm. of them even growing to of the course. level of becoming HODs, deputy principals, also nursing, yes, also the nursing profession. And some have come back to work in the same clinic. Like I know one, she she started at the crash that was built by the foundation. And she was one of the first group that went into the crash, my table crash in 1999. And yes. she went to a primary school, which we also built classroom. She went to a high school, which we built classroom. She also got a, a clef to actually go to university. And then after first year, she got a bursary for bursary mm-hmm. from government. And now she's come back to work in in, in Dewey Clinic. And those are the professions that I can say I've seen that happening. Of course, with the medical doctors, you know, we've got one lady. She's now come back as a doctor, but I know that now she has been moved to another hospital, but she came back and worked there. So they mm-hmm. all, those that they can get a job when they finish, they always want to come back and work yeah. around their communities. Because as we know, CLEF, Community Education Fund Program, also has um, a requirement. During their holidays, they need to come back mm-hmm and do some community work. So I've seen some, most of them come back to school, those who are doing teaching, those who are doing nursing, come back to work at the clinics. And those, like I said, the lady, she used to come back to work at the hospital, who is now a medical doctor. But of course, we have also the other careers, like on the side of engineering, of course, you wouldn't see a lot of them coming back because there's not much of work that they can do around here unless somebody actually maybe is working for the company that is doing some either construction work around the area or whatever it's related to that. So of course those ones with other careers they would actually go to Chobek but they will still be in touch with the community because in our culture you know where you come from no matter you can have your own house wherever 
the urban areas or wherever you are staying because of, of work and you have a family there, but you will always come back. Some from Nobogazi, some from Nivela, some from Dubu. So they are trying to do something at least to give back to their communities, even wherever they are. It's fantastic to see that connection and that sort of that sense of things coming around. Now, another concept that you mentioned a couple of times now that is really interesting, you've spoken about the tribal leaders or the tribal authorities and the interaction that that you've had with them and that Isaac has had with them on behalf of Africa Foundation. Just for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the concept, can you explain what is the role of the tribal authorities and why is it so important for organizations like and beyond and Africa Foundation to earn their trust and their their buy-in and how do they affect the way that we engage with the local communities to start with what is the role of the tribal authorities mainly is to give leadership to the community of mm-hmm. course leadership is about a direction and how do we get there mm-hmm. it also is about the accountability to for them to account to the community as to what is it that they actually have done for the community. And uh, in these communities, as they are leaders, I will make just an example. They know better their communities than even we can bring any researcher to come and do the research because they live with these people. Like, for example, the tribal structure will have the chief, you know, and uh, the chief will have the headman, which is in Duna, and then... Of course, the chief will be in charge of that community of yes. about twelve or 15,000 people. And then they, he will actually appoint the headmen in each section. So they will divide maybe up to like 12 in Duna. So each one will be responsible for that section. And why we actually work through them, our approach is it's a bottom-up approach. We want to hear what are their needs and how we can together resolve those needs. And if ever... We have got challenges, especially if we look at Penda Private Camp Reserve being in these communities, you will expect a high rate of poaching. And whenever you have those cases, the best way to police or the best way to secure the animals or to do conservation successfully, have a good relationship with the leadership of that community. Because if there is any challenge, you will always go and consult through the leadership. And I'll tell you, Kesha, you know, they know their people and they will they will definitely be able to find a person probably even within hours or day or within a day because it is always the information will flow quickly. They will know who might be the suspect. Why we actually prioritize community leadership to build that relationship. How do we live together to actually balance the two so that there's a mutual benefit. Uh, while conservation benefits because the community protect the conservation and they love the community, they support. But also there is a flow, direct flow of the benefit to the community because mm-hmm. they know that as they have the conservation, conservation brings them job opportunities, which is now a priority. And we've got over 60, almost 70% of the staff for, of, of jobs that are within PINDA, which actually have been prioritized for these communities. They will also know that if we protect the, you know, the conservation or if we are part of conservation, we feel part of conservation, that means we are able also to benefit directly. So I'd say also 
in terms of why is actually to build that kind of relationship so that we can have that kind of flow of information between the two, the game reserve and also the communities. The, the, the tower structure, I've also find it very much effective when it comes to issues when there's uh, like poaching and all of that, because mm-hmm. they would easily be able to identify the people and they would be able to share that information quickly. And I think we have had a success stories around that, even with the challenge of, of, of rhino poaching. So we have actually had a very success stories where people, even some will call me, some will even, so I will then pass on the information to the under coaching unit and actually the game reserve or the reserve management. And you will see that, that that means the relationship and the trust is there because I think this structure is, 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 a, is a structure that you need to build trust with so that we can actually be able to sustain the conservation. When we started off talking, you spoke about the reserves being viewed as as a source of meat uh, almost, and, and as a sort of resentment about people having moved off the land. But as the conversations mm-hmm. developed, you know, you start talking about the communities as almost mm-hmm. protectors of the land and almost a, as a security mechanism, tipping off um, the authorities about the, about poaching and so forth. And I know that in fact, you know, some of the land that makes up Pinda was actually returned to the communities as ancestral owners. And yet they've chosen to to use it for conservation. You know, how did this change in attitudes come about, and what are the things that yes. that played into it? I know one of the initiatives you do at Pinda is conservation lessons. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you think that the whole the whole change in the attitude of the community came about over time? Yes, conservation lessons to start with. Uh, that's a great program. As I earlier on indicated, how I joined the foundation. And how I was so clueless about the conservation compared to how now I look at conservation. Mm-hmm. And conservation is one program, I'd say, for any conservation sustainability. If you don't get this to the young people of that community, then you might have got it wrong. Because as I, I also indicated, most of the matriculants who complete matric sometimes they may not have money to go and start at university or technical or whatever, and they will end up hanging around. And it's easy for them to actually uh, team up and say, you know what, we actually need to provide for families or we actually need to make means to live. And you know what they can do easily? And we have seen in other places, they will actually go for poaching so that they come and sell the meat. And one thing that I also indicated, which I always find in the community, even a few, few weeks ago, we were doing some food relief program in Guangwenya community. And one of the speeches that I liked from the chief, from, from the Induna that was there, is to say, you know, these are our neighbors, talking about Pinda and other game reserves. These are our neighbors. So as they are looking after us, even during yes. this pandemic time, where we don't have means, to make a living and all of that. And some have lost jobs, but they're able to provide that with a food parcel. So which means we also need to look after them. And how do we look after them? Is that let's report anybody who is seen to be walking around selling meat from the game reserve. And that one for me was like 100%. 
you know, that was great to hear. That was a message. That that message was everything to me. To see that it's not about buying them, it's not about that, but it's about saying now they see that they can look after us. So coming back to now conservation lessons. So that's where I'm saying if we don't do that while we, they're still young, young people are the messengers. They, they live with their grandmothers. They live with their mothers. They, they, they one experience that I had, which mm-hmm. one of the memories that I have, I remember when I first joined the foundation and I went on a conservation lesson trip where there were like seven, there were eight learners in the vehicle and uh, myself, yes. and then there was a ranger. So as part of conservation lessons, they will come to the reserve and then do a normal game drive that is done by the guests and then get to learn even about the ecosystem, wildlife and everything and get to see the animals. Mm-hmm. And we came across the, an elephant sighting. One thing that I observed from that child, you know, she was, she was, she was afraid, firstly, because she, did, she hasn't seen an elephant in her life. You know, she only seen an elephant in the picture. And, and they were saying, okay, there's an elephant sighting on the other side. So the ranger, you know, spoke to us and say, you know, be ready. This is how you need to behave and all of that. And as we approached the sighting, then she saw this big animal. And I looked at her face. She, she couldn't, you couldn't tell if she would cry or she would laugh or she would scream because she was, she had like mixed feelings, like she didn't know what to say. And as we get closer, well, we kept, we kept a safe distance and we stopped and then talked about it. She was uncomfortable. She, she wasn't, she mm-hmm. wasn't sure either to cry, but then you don't need to make noise and all of that. But as we moved out of the sighting, I started to ask and engage her, like, how did you feel? And she was like, I haven't seen this ever in my life. I'll tell my grandmother. You know, for me, that is a story that we need to share through the conservation lessons to say more than just what they read on the paper and all that, what they see stays longer <laughs> and it, it makes a lot of, you know, uh, it creates memories. And yeah. out of that, that is what we have seen now uh, that communities have started to understand not only them, but also through the message that they get from the children. And as we know, children, as they go back home, they can even start like lessons with their grandmothers and mothers, fathers and everybody at home to say, you know, how to do, you know, why the elephant is like this and how it Mm -hmm. looks like it. And that kind of uh, experience, you know, when elderly or or, or mothers and fathers or parents see their children enjoying that, Definitely, they would love that place. And I always say, if your child visits somewhere and come back not happy, you will not be happy. But if your child visits and come back and, and tell you exciting stories, even next time, you will say, yeah, I actually now want to go and see that place. That's why even Keisha, where I can share this also, it's more like a joke, because I always <laughs> even get complaints, but not in really in the sense of complaints, but saying now you, it's more like you're focusing on the kids. We also want to go there because they tell us about what is there, but we haven't seen that. And now they are young ones. We, we actually, they are parents. They know Pinda better than we know it. And, and if you look at that competition, you know, for me, that is a message. And, and and we also, more than just conservation lessons, during holidays, if it's a normal <laughs> kind of a year, beside that, you know, currently we're still dealing with this pandemic. Mm-hmm. But if it's a normal current time of the year, when the schools are in vacation or they're on holidays, during mm-hmm. that time, we, we also use the same program of conservation lessons to do also the community leaders and community members 
where we will pick like all the travel authority to come in the reserve and see what is happening. And coming also to the question of how that has changed and, and in terms of the land claims, we have two community successful claims with the two community trusts, you know, that is Ngobogazi um, and also Ngobogazi from Ngobogazi community and also Mdugu community, uh, Makasa community. I think that that has been because of one, as I earlier on mentioned, the, the, the bottom of approach for us has worked. It, 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 I will always say it's been very transparent process of going to them, yes. engaging with them in terms of what do they think the uh, Africa Foundation or beyond can assist them. And rather than saying, we think you need that and we think this is how it can be done. That's why even our processes, when we do projects, they are very involving. I always say, Kashia, we can have an, 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 a funding of millions mm-hmm. to do like so many projects and we can do them at a go, like easy, easy, finish them. But I tell you, you will have a, a lot of those projects becoming white elephants because you've not involved the people. And sometimes our donors can get so frustrated with the process before the project start because they would like to understand why the project is not happening and all of that. But I think the, the, the most important part in the success of the project, I always say it's consultation. It's prior the project actual implementation. That one, if you get that one right, the period how you implement the project, if it's construction, three months, two months, it's, it's for me, that is actually the end product. But the very important one is how you have prepared mm-hmm. to actually get to where you want to get. So I think that kind of relationship over the years and engagement and type of project that we have done, including conservation lesson, has actually made it easy for the community to understand and to buy into understanding the value of conservation over the years. Hence, even during the land claims, they were happy to say, you know what, we're going to lease the land mm-hmm. back for years you continue to use it. In the process, there is a lot of skills transfer. Other new like managers that we are seeing coming up, even through the large system that you will see that somebody came in, they came in maybe through starting training, which they came in to learn about hospitality, like what is happening on when you're working at the lodge and they went through all the departments. And then when there was opportunity for a job, they were employed maybe as a waiter, they moved being, becoming a host camp manager and some even now becoming lodge managers and rangers, trackers. And, and I think that kind of sharing of information project that are very involving in terms of how uh, they're having so much impact in the communities, those programs have actually added and actually has made it much easier for the community to make decisions to say, now we see that we can actually work with PINDA and we can grow from PINDA while they are using this land that we used to live in, but also they are using it even to our own benefits. That's really fascinating. And Becky, you've spoken about relationships and about making connections. And that's something that Africa Foundation is really good at, not just with the communities, but also you've put a lot of time and effort into connecting 
the game reserve to the communities, connecting the communities to donors and sponsors and to the government bodies that can actually, in some cases, help and make things easier for them. Mm. And I think one particular project that I'm aware of where that has happened so successfully is the Kulani Special School. And it's it's grown immensely. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and how it started off so small and how the relationships and the connections that you were able to make have allowed it to become so successful and such a really big project for Africa Foundation over the years? Kulani Special School is one of my favorite. How Kulani Special School came about was through, there's a Kulani disabled group that was formed by the elderly people who are living with disabilities. And some of them were involved in that, not because of direct living with disability themselves, but find that their grandchildren or their children are actually going through that or are they living with disability. They actually saw a need because most of the schools are public schools, primary or in primary or high schools. They don't really accommodate those children who are living with severe conditions. They can accommodate some of them, but with in terms of being severe, they are unable because of how they are built in terms of the infrastructure and all of that. Not all of them. I remember in the district, I think there were only two schools that were actually special school because that is more like a special need kind of attention that they needed. They also observed the same with all five communities. They didn't have any special school. And as a result, they approached Africa Foundation. They would invite us for a meeting, sit under the tree, talk through their their vision. This is what they do. But more than just what they're doing, they were looking for funding to build a school for the disabled children. And the trend was that um, most of those children or learners were, or children were living with disability. Some of them were hidden at home because in somehow in our culture, When you give birth to a disabled child, sometimes there are a lot of issues, there are a lot of things that people say, and it will come like as a shame, and people won't feel comfortable in the community because of the stigma that has been created out of that. So some of them will hide them, and then you find that kids will grow there without having been exposed to any community lifestyle, and they felt like you know what, let's give these other children an opportunity. If there can be a school, they'll be given an opportunity to also experience life and actually even be able to show that what they are able to do. Living with disability it is not that you cannot do anything. Even they can do some things much better than any other person. So that is how the school came about. And we're able to raise funds. When, when we, we meet the people and they say they have got a need, we always ask the question that, what have you done? So they had already done their background work. One of the members of the disabled group had already donated with one of, of the house to one of the relatives used to live there, but they were no longer living there. So it was it was next to his house, it left abandoned. But it was a good two-roomed house and another um, shack on the, on the side. So And then they said, we also have a place where we can start. We were ready to start even with 10 kids because we'll start with our own children, our grandchildren, and we'll look after mm-hmm. them. We already have volunteers who can work with them and help them. That, that for us was, it was so much motivating to say they've already done something. And as we know, with the Department of Education, for you to get approval for the school, you to meet some requirements, of course, the infrastructure, at mm-hmm. least you must show some kind of saying, I've got so many children who are already 
going there. So they started there to say, you know what, for this to grow, I think we can do a bit because through Suga, they were able to repaint, renovate, put the fence on that old structure. But then they invited me to be part of that and lead the process of fundraising. And I, I got involved there. Fast forward from there, we're able mm-hmm. to raise about one point. Uh, six million rent. There was a lot of process uh, to involve the Department of Education to prove to them that we would be able to build this. And they committed to actually hire the teachers, the principals. And we were able to do our first three classroom with two storerooms and five toilets and the fencing. And of course, since this is a special school, we're able to build like walkways so that they can even use the wheelchairs. And then we're able to bring in the Department of Health through Selene Hospital, Dugo Hospital. When we do any project, we always firstly identify mm-hmm. who are the other key stakeholders that we need to involve. So one played that role. And to be honest, Kesha, that, that, that project, every time I go around there, if you look at that 1.6 million and a lot of consultation yes. that took place behind that profiling of the project and everything, facilitation of all the stakeholders with all the departments, bringing in the, the, the MEC in the province to open the school and be able to commit 54.6 million. I remember when we ended over in 2011 and after that, now the project grew up in up to 89 million rand that came from the government to build that kind of a special need school. And having been involved there, for me, I, I felt so fulfilled. And it was like, wow. I remember the first meeting we had, we were under the tree. I had all these grannies, you know, that were part of this. And I still remember them. One of the grandmother, one of the lovely stories, she passed on, I think, two years ago, Mason Suwini. Even at the school, there is a there is a there is a, a room that they allocate for emergency and all that. So you will have a bed and it's a very nice, like a, it's like a hotel room. So what they used to say at the school, she will she she will always come. They used to call it his hair office. She will always come and and rest there and sleep there and you know for the day she's not doing any. She it, it was her. She was so fulfilled to see the school, you know. So I'd say Kulani has been one of the multi-stakeholder project because if you talk about that and as a special school it's not only the department of education you're also looking talking about the health you're also talking about social development you're also talking about you know home affairs and because there's a a lot of challenges others didn't have even birth certificates and all of that so that has to be addressed there but if you look at how africa foundation got involved it was mainly the through the consultation and Mm -hmm. also using our all processes throughout took us almost two years to get it up for as, as in phase one and fundraising and actually funding the project, which has been an, um, a lovely story. And maybe to say thing last on Kulani is, is that it has become also a conference center of the district for the Department of Education, especially. They hold meetings there. All the school, they come as far as Manguzi, which is 120, 150 kilometers coming into Kulani. Part of it is that um, they've got uh, like 220 learners who are staying there. And now the learners at, at Kulani, they come as far as Bangani, which is like 200 kilometers away. And they leave other special schools to try and come here because of, of, of the facility and how it looks like and how it was built. So I think we... Wow. We were, that's how, that's how we involved. Right? Keisha can talk about Kulani. There are a lot of other exciting stories and love stories and mm-hmm. jokes and, you know, how it all came about. But mm-hmm. to see it as it is now is really humbling. 
and being through the work of Africa Foundation and NPO and Pinda specifically. It's a really amazing project. And it's obviously one that's very, very close to your heart. Mm, mm, mm. Becky, just to end off with, we've mentioned a couple of times that the, the COVID-19 pandemic has obviously brought about a very challenging time for for the rural communities that you're working with. What have been some of the most urgent needs of these communities during this time? And how have you, how have you in the Africa Foundation been trying to help meet those needs? The most urgent needs have been families didn't have means to put food on the table because those who had jobs, mainly the jobs in the community are temporary jobs. That is funded as a construction company, there's a lot of people that are employed there. So that one had to stop, then there's nothing. Those who had the jobs, sometimes they got half salary one or two months later, they didn't have anything because the company couldn't. And as you know, mm-hmm. most of the people mm-hmm. are employed in lodges, not only we're talking about and beyond, but also other companies around. There's been a, a need for food and mainly you find that the, the, especially the women, they sell food or they sell anything that they're getting from their from their garden. And now people were not working and there was nothing happening. Everything yeah. had to stop. So those people who would go out and put a table and sell sweets and whatever, even at schools. And so it stopped. Now there was a big challenge of food. And uh, we were very much involved with in the food relief program and um, uh, in distribution of food. And thanks to our donors that came up even some with, before we can even approach them, we have actually seen some of the donors donated maybe classroom to a crash or a school and, and they will say, what can we do? Can you send funds to actually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for, for relief, for food parcels? So we've done a lot of that, especially at Gwangwenya community directly. We have done now, I think, over 450 food parcels during that time and we're still doing them. Now we actually have narrowed the scope to actually try and help those who are not even getting any grants from the government. So we're trying to do like 150 every month for the next three or four months. And in the crashes, we have done the same. Those donors who have sent money, Mm -hmm. have done food parcel for the kids. Uh, But of course, what we'll do, we'll invite all the parents to come and take those food for the kids because they will get food at school or at the crash, like one meal a day. So we've done all of that. Also worked with other stakeholders, with other, you know, neighbors who are actually running like operating lodges because they are learning a lot from us as as, as Africa Foundation and and beyond. So I've been much involved, especially in the community that we work with. They say, we want to help there, but when I come through you, how can we help? So since we have the leadership structure, we know who to consult and all that. So that has been happening over the years. Now, the challenge, of course, uh, looking going forward, uh, I think what I see now as a challenge to us as Africa Foundation and beyond and any other, you know, stakeholders is to actually to look at how can we self-sustain these communities, make this community to be self-sustained so that even in future, when such time comes, they can be able to sustain themselves. That's why we have now actually focused our projects into those projects that can help to self-sustain those communities. For example, we're funding a lot of water boreholes to actually go into the food gardens or vegetable gardens. And also we are looking at all other small business development to see how can they self-sustain as communities. Fantastic. It makes perfect sense to do it that way. 
Becky, if there are any of our listeners who would like to find out more about those projects and maybe get involved, give a little bit of a donation, can you just direct them to the website address where they can get more information? Yes, you, you can go through africafoundation.org.za and the need is out there. And of course, it's always about empowering communities mm-hmm. through conservation. For our projects are mainly about how can people self-sustain yes. themselves be empowered to even do it even without us in the future. That's what we're looking to see that. Becky, thank you so much. As as always, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to feel your passion for the projects and for what you do. You're most welcome, Kesha, and thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, Drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.